Hello, this is Guillermo del Toro, and welcome to the audio commentary for Pacific Rim. I want to thank you for being here. This movie was made out of love, and uh, it's great to be able to share some of that love with you today. This movie couldn't have been done without the enthusiasm and support of Legendary Pictures and Warner Brothers. But Legendary was fundamental in creating this film, Thomas Toll and John Jashney, in supporting the vision of a movie that wanted to be not a nostalgic piece of museography or geek museography, but a movie that injected new life and new passion to two genres that had been vital for me growing up in Mexico in the 1960s. Turns out I was looking in the room. The tokusatsu and the kaiju genre, which are the science fiction and giant monster movies or TV series in Japan, and the mecha genre, which I will talk about a little more. Portal. I wanted to have the movie right away start, not have a pause and give it non-stop rhythm if possible. And we start with a few images that are very, very well put together, designed and executed by ILM and myself, which is this first attack on the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, they are really, really deliberately designed to give you the majesty of a kaiju attack. And then, right after these few images, we finish with a very majestic shot of the kaiju right here. And then we go into a quick sort of glossary. The movie has developed this glossary of terms of what you are about to see. This sort of prequel, quick couple of minutes of a prequel of the film. I was not interested in either chronicling the first attack of the kaiju or the moment when we were triumphant and winning. I wanted to talk about the struggle, the epic struggle of the resistance when we were losing. So we needed this whole area of the movie, this um, prologue or prequel prologue, to have a different flavor than the rest of the movie, to have sort of a found footage flavor. And I'm good at this and I'm good at that, but I'm not good at found footage. So. I recruited the help of the company Mirada, which is a company that Javier Jimenez, Guillermo Navarro, Matthew Cullen and myself founded a few years ago. And Matthew, who's a really talented director, was kind enough to collaborate with me in putting together all this. We assembled first footage uh, of uh, sort of found footage from the net, then I storyboarded things like this shot and a few others. And we put together the storyboards, the fun footage from archives and organized it with the voiceover of Charlie Hunnam into a coherent narrative. And then Matthew went and shot all the fun footage most everywhere in the world. And he did a fantastic job because it needed to feel sort of different from the movie. You know, the film has a very, very deliberate, very designed quality to it. And we needed a more urgent you are there feel for this footage and I must say really I'm very very proud of all these BFX shots that Mirada delivered and I'm very very proud of Matthew and very grateful for his help. So we develop this glossary of terms, we give you an idea of the world and right away then we start the movie in the last battle of the time when we were winning quote-unquote. And we start with the youth, with the period of youth for Raleigh and his brother. And I wanted this to tonally be different from the rest of the film too, because we are still sort of triumphant. And the aesthetic on this part of the preparation is the aesthetic of the winners. You know, Raleigh is very young, 
supercharged and full of enthusiasm. And the character that Charlie and his brother and basically every pilot in the movie, these characters have to be delineated very, very, very quick. You're dealing with types. You're dealing with characters that exist in this uh, genre, the Kaiju and the Mecha, these genres, and have to be delineated quickly. So I tried to do it by accumulating details and by the way they interact with things. And here we start texturing the world. You cannot do world creation without filling it with texture and detail. I wanted you to see the circuitry suits. I wanted to see how they were put together and do this very, very, very minute launching. I remember Paul Schrader talking about American Gigolo and saying, if you do a sequence once really, really well, people will know that uh, that's the way things happen over and over again. You don't have to see the Jaegers being launched many times. You see it once. You see the preparation of the suit once. And if you do it really carefully and you accumulate reality, you can see how bit by bit we start feeling with details of this launching. I call it jokingly the Thunderbirds launching because it's very much inspired by how complex and baroque Gary Anderson did all the launching of the ships in the Thunderbirds. And the Thunderbirds are sort of uh, laterally connected with the tokusatsu genre in Japan because they were quite an inspiration for Eiji Suburaya in his TV series like Ultra 7 and Ultraman and all that. And uh, I wanted very much to show you a world that felt detailed. We designed everything in this movie. We designed the patches in the, in the shirts and the uniforms. We designed the banners, the badges, all the advisory in the doors. We designed the Jaegers to the minimal detail. You know, we designed the Jaegers so that if you zoom in into the controls, you would see uh, electrical discharge warnings. You would see ladders. Uh, you would see places where you would connect. And to engineer the amount of detail, mechanically, uh, the amount of detail in design is staggering. We spend about a year texturing this world. And the accumulation of that mosaic of detail, design-wise, gives you the sense of a real world. People think that a uh, world creation movie, for example, is the big gestures, but it isn't. It's all these small details. Look at the markings. Look at the vehicles that open the doors. Look at the banners and the markings in the crawler that moves the robot. Everything is full of detail. We designed this, look at the bomber art and the chest. Uh, Gypsy Danger, this robot, is designed to resemble a uh, warplane from World War II. So we have the big riveting, we have the majestic lines of an Art Deco building in New York, and we gave it the gait of a gunslinger, of a Western fighter. Each of the robots is designed to have a personality, and Gypsy has that strong personality of a gunslinger at a duel, sort of a, a kind of a John Wayne gait, you know? And it's very important for me to not just design for design, but not to create eye candy, but to create protein because I think that 50% of the narrative of a film is submerged in the audiovisual details and you are not doing this just for doing this and, it, and just because it looks cool you're actually doing it for a narrative reason it's important for example to see the two brothers are in white and we are going to stain this white with a color that I'm very careful to use in my design sparingly which is red 
Red is very fundamental in this film uh, to be used carefully because, as I will explain later, it becomes vital for the story of another character. And it basically is going to symbolize, in a way, life. So when we stain this white suit of the pilots with red, it's fundamental. It's a very dramatic moment, and you, you, we will come to it. You know what I'm thinking. I'm in your brain. But everything is textured to be damaged a little bit, you know? Everything is a little dented. You see that it feels used. I believe, as I was saying, that image design or storytelling affects content uh, through the audiovisual form is content on film. There are things you can't fight. And we right away go into a world that feels textured, that is not triumphalist. This is not the normal movie where everything is super shiny, illuminated by fluorescent lights, and it feels like a half a car commercial or half a recruitment video for the army. We go into what I call gothic tech or goth tech, which is to go right away into a world that is rusting, that is in decay, where you have the concrete is cheap, the, the paint is chipping off. The armors in the robots is dented, it's sort of pitted, and they feel like knights, like these ancient knights. And we start accumulating, for example, atmosphere. I wanted the movie to be very romantic, but not romantic in the Harlequin novel sense or, or the romance novel sense of, of the word. I wanted it to be romantic in, in its epicness. You know, I wanted it to feel like an opera. I wanted it to feel dramatic. So instead, instead of doing this in a well-lit uh, street in New York, I wanted this first fight to happen in almost like the middle of a romantic painting, like Caspar uh, David Friedrich is a romantic painter that I adore. And I wanted very much for it to happen in the rain, in the middle of a tempest, in an ocean where the waves are crashing into them. And with the water, throughout the movie becomes an incredibly complex, expressive element. I had the chat with ILM, with um, the simulation department through John Knoll, who is a genius and a great collaborator and a friend, about how we would approach the waves and the water. And the water becomes a narrative element, almost like a musical element. And they did these waves, we would call them the Hokushai waves because they were inspired in the engravings of Hokushai and, and his Japanese waves. And everything is telling you the story. They are, they are not just aesthetic choices, they are narrative choices. For example, look at this sequence and realize that it's not lit like a normal movie sequence where everything is, has a fill light and a kill light. This is mostly lit with the light of the Jaeger lighting the, the kaiju. Listen to the soundtrack. There is no music. Look at the way we are just... When the lights of the Jaeger hit the kaiju, you see the kaiju. But if you don't, you are almost in darkness. You know, we break the line of the water. We stain the lens with water. We deliberately put, quote-unquote, mistakes into shots that are very expensive, very elaborate. Why? Because this is an aesthetic choice, but it's also a narrative choice. I don't want to make this uh, narrative, the regular narrative of uh, CG movies where every shot looks super cool. I want to get in the way. I want to give you reality. Stain the lens with water. Have an error in the operation of the camera. Make the image obscured by water, by fog, by in, later in the movie, obscured by condensation in the lens and so forth. 
and we make this scene very tense so far without music now the music is taking over and we go into it and in the fight if you if you rewind if you go if you see it again you'll see that it, for example we make the decision of using master shots over and over and over a close up and it's told as if there were real cameras there as if the cameras were really being operated with errors by operation and so forth but also repeating angles think about it for a second normally a director goes for what makes the shot cooler and i wanted to give you the sense that these things were really happening so i repeat the language i show you the shot that we have the master that is shot from a speedboat or a helicopter repeat the over and over and so on and so forth and i wanted it to be full of drama we are just opening the movie and i wanted you to be in the middle of a battle and really really make you feel what it is to battle one of these creatures The movie wanted to evoke the sense of awe and scale that I felt when I was a kid sitting down in a theater in the 60s and seeing one of these movies. I wanted the drama, I wanted to show you the Jaeger losing, but I wanted you to feel like you were right there. And again, I was very inspired by uh, World War II movies and adventure movies where you could be inside of a tank in the middle of a desert or the tundra and i wanted you to feel this and for that reason we created the cockpits that the pilots are in physically this movie has a lot of cg of course and directing the cg for me is as elaborate as directing a live action shot i direct the actors i direct the angle the size of the lens i direct the composition i direct the storyboarding the acting the atmospherics the cinematography and so forth and it's very elaborate but i wanted also the movie to have a lot of real elements and here again we build those cockpits you can see the supplements and see how much of this movie was actually built for real now we're going to sort of a palate cleanser a moment of reality of a different scale look at i i got to this small little robot rotting in the beach because constantly in the film we're going to juxtapose the gigantic and the small We're going to juxtapose a huge battle with a little detail like a Newton cradle or a little toy like this or a little shoe a little red shoe constantly giving you a sense of scale of awe of majesty you know I wanted you to know what it feels like for a 25 story Jaeger to fight a 25 story monster or fall in the beach and with this shot coming up look at this We go from the big, the gigantic, and in a single shot we're going to go from the biggest, the widest to the little bug of a pilot crawling out of the helmet. Isolate Rolly. You know, we isolate Rolly. I'm telling you the story. Look at the markings on his suit, the burn marks on his skin. Those are going to become scars that he's going to carry for the rest of the movie. And I'm telling you this is when we started losing this was the price for arrogance this was the price for youth and we're staining the white with red i'm trying to build a character not just by the work of the actor but by the storytelling with audiovisual elements and then i want to show you finally how small rolly is again in juxtaposition with the robot with this this shot we go again to talk about scale 
And why is it important to talk about scale in this movie? Because at the end of the day, the human story, the emotions have to be constructed through this type of coding because we're dealing with types. We're going to have the young pilot, the female pilot, the officer, the scientist. We're working with a given characters in this genre. And each of these characters have to be textured very carefully with very little gestures. The very few lines, for example, Raleigh and Mako, two of the main characters, have the least amount of lines in the film. I wanted very much to have the story of two characters that do not trust almost anyone, that are incapable of giving to somebody else. And for them to find their fallibility, accept their fallibility, and trust each other in spite of it. I think it's very important when you're dealing in a genre movie to do things efficiently. Or you end up with the movies that are genre movies that are now two hours and 50 minutes or three hours ten. And, you know, your bot-ometer is on red alert after an hour and 45, and you really want it over. I wanted this movie to have very little fat. When people ask me what was the most complicated thing about this film is I, to, I say to keep it simple. For example, in this scene, very efficiently, we talk about how the politicians are useless, which is something I completely believe in real life. And they are just guys that are interested not in building bridges or solutions, but in building walls. And I wanted very much to use that symbolically. This group of guys responding to polls and, and to just uh, build a wall as a solution which is the easiest solution for a politician. And again, look at this, a very small detail in the middle of a movie about proportions, just one pill starts telling you who Pentecost is, what his predicament is, and we do it, I hope, rather efficiently. We then show you this, and again, to make the world feel real, you feel the details, we damage this billboard, I do the graffiti where people say the wall will never be completed you know, then we go into work for ration and we start telling you that this guy, the fall from grace of Raleigh, is he was a superstar. He was a rock star. And now he's working for food. You know, we created this world that uh, where all the uniforms evoke World War II, Rosie the Riveter, the overalls, the, everything evokes a factory in World War II. And texturally, we are going into aesthetics of that uh, type of movie. And later on, we even designed an anti-kaiju refuge, basically on an anti-aerial bomb refuge in London in the 40s. And once again, here I show you the magnitude of the wall work, and I isolate Raleigh in the same way that I isolated him before in the beach, and I show you that he is alone. And for a moment, he gazes at the horizon, at the sea where he lost his brother, but he is basically alone in the world. He has no one, he doesn't have to trust anyone, and he is um, not willing to engage, really. And here comes a very curious thing that I've, uh, people think that I, in order to make this movie, I saw a lot of uh, action movies or this or that, but you know, what I was watching was actually sports movies. Because I wanted Raleigh to be the rookie that comes back to a team after years of retirement, you know, the sort of 40-year-old rookie coming back. And one of the things we wanted to do was to not make it a movie about one hero, but a bunch of heroes, about a composite of humanity, to show that this movie is global at scale. Here, for example, we introduced the hotshots, you know, the guys that are 
the superstars, the pilots of the Australian Jaeger that comes in and bing bang, he takes care of things really quick. Uh, he is sort of the sports superstar, if we continue with the sports movie analogy, and they take care of business really, really, really quick. And it's a global movie, it's happening everywhere in the world. Unlike uh, movies where the aliens seem to get a single map of the world and it only has New York or uh, Washington in the map, I wanted this movie to be about a worldwide crisis, but to be a movie about, again, not just one hero, but a composite of heroes saving the world. The world saving the world. Every race, every sex, every creed, every color of skin are coming together to, to do this. You know, Raleigh is one of them, but it's a movie about togetherness. It's a movie about connecting. It's a movie about trust, trusting each other. Because we are all inside the same robot. And it's very metaphorically very, very easy to just show you that the two pilots are inside the head. The right-hand side pilot is the dominant one, but they're still having to move the robot together. The neural load of moving a machine that size is not uh, something one person can handle. So these two pilots need to connect through memories and they will see the worst of each other and the best of each other. And they have to trust each other. And then every character in this film needs to learn to trust the other again. Pentecost here and Raleigh need to learn to trust each other. They need to find their common ground. The two scientists need to trust each other, in the, even if they hate each other. And the father needs to trust the son. The father needs to trust the daughter, and so on and so forth. That theme is repeated throughout the movie. And it's about colors coming together. And look at this. Raleigh is all introduced in these warm colors, golden, gold colors. And he's all coated in warm uh, greens and earth tones. And the light that is bathing him is always golden. And it's about that color coming together with Mako's dominant color and uh, Pentecost in this case, which is connected with Mako, which are blues. So this, we come to the scene where they meet for the first time and I have color coded this scene entirely in those two colors, in the blue and the ambers, you know, the, the, the bright ambers and the blue, the sort of cyan blue. And this is Mako meeting Raleigh. So the entire thing needs to be color coded like that. And Mako is blue uh, because I'm linking her origin to the kaiju, the kaiju blue, the blood of the kaiju. But also, you will see in a few minutes, a memory, a memory that is all color-coded in blue and splashes of red in, in her past as a child. And that blue has stained her hair. Even her hair has these strands of blue because she, she cannot get rid of that memory. She carries it in her. In a way... The little Mako, the afraid little Mako, is inside the heart of the grown-up Mako in the way that Mako is going to reside inside the giant robot. It's sort of a Chinese box or Russian dolls sort of uh, a drama, you know? At, at the core of a giant robot, there is a scared little girl and a young uh, pilot like Raleigh trying to get by, you know? And you see that they're the color staining her hair. And each of these characters, each of these 10 characters is going to bring the best of them in order to save the world. I don't like movies where we are only responding to WASP ideals 
of military superiority and ballistic superiority, and we only win by the quality of our weapons. I don't like that, and I tried to transmit in the film that we are going to win by all of us doing the best we can. We're going to need the scientists' imagination and ingenuity. We're going to need self-sacrifice. We're going to need a valor. We're going to need all the characteristics of these characters, these types, again. I'm not pretending that this is the cherry orchard with giant robots and monsters. But these are types, and these types have to be innovative and feel fresh. For example, the scientists, instead of being the guy in a white lab coat and this and that, I wanted to have it composited of two different sides. The sort of comic geek, the super fan, which is Newt, this guy, that is sort of a comic book geek that thinks he is himself a super superstar, a punk rock star with the tattoos and the body holly glasses and, you know, full of attitude. And the other one, which is Gottlieb, which is a more conservative scientist. And we'll talk about them a little more. But all these guys come together. And again, if this is a sports movie, the analogy is now this guy, this this fallen from grace, 40-year-old rookie, whatever, you know. I mean, Raleigh is much younger than that, of course. But he comes to the sports arena. This is the big time. And look at the design of the, the technology here. And we are continuing the gothic tech motif and designed the Shatterdom to be half a launching pad and half a cathedral. You know, we designed it to feel real and textured and used. We referenced a lot of photography from launching pads. We researched NASA. We researched large shipyards where they assemble ships and so forth. And we start introducing this old technology, technology that feels used. And we have a few gestures to introduce each of the pilot teams. Every gesture counts with the robots and the pilots because we have so many. And uh, we color-coded, for example, the Chinese robot. We color-coded it red and gold and is patterned after uh, medieval armor. You know, and it needs to feel Chinese in essence. It needs to respond to martial arts movements. His musical theme is very strong. And we introduce the three pilots, three identical triplets that uh, connect one with another. And the way to show that they connect, the easiest way, effortlessly way, the effortless way was the, the basketball scene, you know, just to show that they play together very well. And here again, we have now a robot, a Jaeger, that is designed, a mech, that is designed to resemble a T-series Russian tank color-coded like that with like a cooling tower from a nuclear reactor on top and this couple that with very small gestures I want to show that they love each other they trust each other the female is the dominant one in this is on the right side of the robot is the dominant pilot and the father and son team and the Australians the father is the in theory the dominant uh, pilot but in their relationship the son is overwhelming I wanted. I talked to Max Martini and uh, Rob Kaczynski, two amazing actors, about the relationship. And I said to Max, "You are the father of a star child. You are the father of a very gifted child musician, a singer. You know, he's a brat. And but you don't get along. But in the within the robot, you have to trust each other." And we introduced Striker Eureka, the Australian Jaeger, which is designed a little bit like an all-terrain vehicle. 
and color-coded with the Outback camouflage colors and is the most masculine of the robots, of the Jaegers, of the mech, and is very much testosterone-driven. It is very important to do these gestures very quickly and to introduce these characters efficiently so we can then dispense with a lot of logistics in the film is to try to do invisible uh, lines that allow you to dispense hundreds and hundreds of notions of plot, of science, of this and that, hopefully in an entertaining way. Marshall! And uh, I wanted very much to have Raleigh feel unwelcome. Again, the sports movie analogy. The coach that recruited him is really indifferent to him, and the star basketball player uh, or baseball player, whatever you want, looks at him with great suspicion, and they're not going to like each other, of course. But it's important that those two enemies, eventually, through the movie, they will connect. They will connect. The same way that these two scientists, one that is old-fashioned and all about numbers and believes in numbers and precision, and the other one that is an intuitive, uh, sort of messy, biological scientist, they're going to have to come together to trust each other. Right now, I show you they are in separate teams. They don't like each other, and they have the same lab, but the lab is divided by a little yellow line in the center that you can see there. One scientist has one side of the lab, the other one has the other one, and they hate each other. And, um, you know, it was important for me to deal with these notions because we are going to deal with so many new notions in the film, like drifting and drifting through memories and drifting with a kaiju and these crazy ideas uh, that I've never seen on, on uh, films in this genre, like connecting with the brain of a monster in order to understand what's going on. So each of these characters brings the best to explain the world, yes, but to explain sides of humanity. And at the end of the film, if I did my job right, all these characters will have a moment, a great hero moment, all of them. The female pilot, the, the Australian pilot, the, everybody will get a moment to, to shine, you know? And they are really one single character. Humanity against enormous adversity the consumerism non-stop consumerism that propels the kaijus like living weapons to to come to the world that are, are about to be terraformed and get rid of the vermin the kaiju are very much close to my heart because in a way they are related to wrestling movies in mexico they, all these movies were about so and so versus so and so and you then needed to you didn't need to root for the good kaiju or the bad kaiju. You rooted for the kaiju that you felt the most love for, even if it was the bad guy. Like in a wrestling match, sometimes the, the audience roots for the, the bad wrestler. The kaiju genre is such a blessing that it exists. It exists by mere coincidence, like everything great. And there was a producer, Tanaka-san, uh, Tomoyuki Tanaka, that had found himself in Toho Productions with a budget, with a crew, with a slot to be able to make a movie, but he had no movie. His movie had fallen through. And he decided, why don't we make a giant monster movie? Like the great movies like King Kong or A Beast from the 20,000 Fathoms, which at that moment was being a huge box office success, the Ray Harryhausen movie. And in a way, stop-motion animation monsters 
give birth to the entire genre of kaiju by being a collateral factor in this. Both Ishiro Honda and uh, Eiji Suburaya were huge fans of King Kong, and they loved King Kong. And uh, obviously, they, everybody loved Harryhausen, and they wanted to make a giant monster movie. And they were very influenced by an accident that had happened in the Bikini Atoll, a nuclear fallout that had damaged a fishing vessel, a Japanese fishing vessel with a fallout, a, a vessel called the Lucky Dragon. And they, they started thinking about how to tell the story of this monster. She always was. And it started, it was called Project G. And it was about a giant octopus attacking Japan. But little by little, you know, they started talking, well, let's, we cannot use a stop motion. So they decided, Suburaya decided to use a man in a suit. And they started designing the suit that eventually would become Gojira, Godzilla. And, uh, and Akira Watanabe started designing it based on, um, on illustrations, famous dinosaur illustrations that were published in American magazines, beautiful oil paintings that were the first time that dinosaurs exploded in the collective mind with these gorgeous paintings full of lush detail. And he combined the spines of a stegosaurus with the shape of a T-Rex, essentially. And Gojira was born, Godzilla was born. Its name uh, meant to evoke spectacle. Its name in Japanese was the quintessence of the giant beast. I think you're unpredictable. Curiously enough, little by little, because Ishiro Honda was a director that had the soul of a documentary director, and little by little, the details of reality textured that first Gojira movie, Godzilla movie, the Japanese version I'm talking about, not the one with Raymond Burr. But they textured the movie with reality. I'm not saying just verisimilitude, but reality. And there are moments in that movie that, that are very dark and very moving and very dramatic. And it's a real masterpiece of, of uh, not only the kaiju genre and the birth of the kaiju genre, but it's a really strong, it's a very strong piece. And... Uh, because Ishiro Honda was a documentary director in, at heart, because Eiji Suburaya was a magician of special effects, a guy that had recreated um, an aerial attack to such degree before doing these movies, he was a guy that was so obsessed with perfection, technical perfection, that the footage of that attack was thought to be real by Allied troops and by Allies. They thought the Japanese had filmed an aerial attack for real. Eiji Suburaya was so obsessed. This combination of these guys, of these talents, you know, uh, gave birth to an exceptional movie. Think about the factors that combined into this film. You know, you have um, Akira Ifukube creating an amazing score, one that uh, spells the word Godzilla in, in its music, you know, uh, that gives themes. For example, Ramin Jawadi and, and myself, we wanted to evoke adventure and so forth. Oh, this is important. This is the big dining room scene in a sports movie. Again, all the teams are looking at him with a little suspicion and this and that, and he meets the star, the star player, and they don't like each other. But I was saying... Um, Akira Fukube, and a very, very important guy, Haruo Nakajima. Nakajima was the greatest suit performer of the kaiju genre ever known. 
This guy was a one-man Ray Harryhausen in a way. You know, he played not only Gojira, but he played many, many of the key kaijus in film and in tokusatsu on TV for Ultraman, Ultra 7. I think he played, uh, you know, some of the most emblematic kaijus that, that you ever met as a kid back then. You know, on Godzilla, he was inside a 200-pound suit in unventilated stages. You know, I met uh, Dan Moroboshi when I was in Tokyo, Ultra 7 himself, and uh, and we were talking about the, the, the days when they were shooting the tokusatsu, and he said to me what he remembered very vividly was the heat, this intense heat, because these were unventilated stages in the peak of the summer, everybody sweating profusely. Imagine Nakajima inside the suit, absolutely at the mercy of latex and, and the heat, and trying to, to survive the experience. Nobody came close to him at withstanding the suit, you know? And uh, therefore, in designing the Kaijus in Pacific Rim, we created what I call the Nakajima factor, which is to bring in the proportions of a man in a suit. And if we were making this movie in 1960s, we could still make those monsters with a guy in a suit. The kaijus, the kaijus, we'll talk a little more about them, but let me say this is a very important scene for me. Again, in, with the expediency of the genre, I shot this scene very, very carefully over a few days to give it a lot of style, but to make it not a fight, but a courtship. You know, and not only a courtship, but a moment in which these two pilots that really don't like anyone else come to respect each other. This is the first time they really, really start to connect. We saw her being curious about him. We saw him being curious about her, but they don't like each other that much. And I wanted to shoot this fight like a dance. How about we give her a shot? I wanted to shoot this fight like a courtship, like a moment of connection. And eventually, I was hoping we shot enough coverage and enough enough um, ways that I could graduate the degree of chemistry between them and end the movie with Michael and Wally finding each other. And we talked about the color red. Well, here it becomes very important. We have these characters fighting in an arena that is very, very color-coded to be very warm. We have a lot of uh, reddish reddish uh, art direction here we color-coded this arena in black and red the sticks the wood uh, the machines the color of the light hitting the machines the symbols on the wall everything is permeated with red because again i wanted red to symbolize sort of the heart and mako is going to find her heart and raleigh is going to find his heart or life by connecting with Mako. We saw him bleeding. The last time we saw Red with any importance other than the Chinese robot was when he was bleeding in the beach. And this is part of that submerged storytelling, if you want. Look at the rust in the machines. Everything was done to color code this scene in red and black. And it's shot like a dance. It's shot very much like a choreography in a dance. Uh, if this was a 19th century movie, they would be dancing the waltz. You know, with each other. And they both start respecting each other. I love the little smile that uh, that Charlie Hunnam does with Mako. You know, Rinko Kikuchi and Charlie Hunnam, 
they were a pleasure to work with. They knew that their characters needed to be done with very few lines of dialogue. They knew that they needed to have effortless, what I call effortless heroism. And this is very hard. You know, most actors like parts to be extremely complex, to get all the lines, and they sort of dedicate their life to finding that kind of part. And then when I met with Charlie, uh, much to his credit, I said, look, I want a movie that I would have seen when I was 11. I, I don't want a war movie uh, uh, or an action movie per se. I want an adventure movie. I want the simplicity, the terse heroism that you that feels almost like a throwback to an adventure movie, the kind of uh, movie that I saw growing up, you know? I remember one of my favorite movies, The Jungle Book, Sultan Court as The Jungle Book, was a movie with very saturated colors, incredible color palette, which I tried to evoke in this film. And I also loved all these movies about scope and heroism. As a kid, I wanted to be a cowboy or a spaceman or a scuba diver. But there was a sense of adventure. And I really feel that uh, most of the options in big movies these days for the kids are very militaristic, pro-militaristic. And I didn't want to make a militaristic movie. I wanted to make a humanistic movie. A movie in which we understand that in spite or precisely because of our flaws is that we that we triumph that we are vulnerable and human and that's what makes us conquer the day and again red coming in and linking these three characters these three characters are the heart of the movie you know and blood fallibility mortality is what makes us human and pentecost and raleigh and michael are the heart of the film uh especially michael scene now Pentecost is such a great privilege to work with Idris Elba. Idris is a character actor that I loved in The Wire. And I thought, my God, what a great American actor. And then when I saw Luther and I met Neil Cross in New Zealand, I asked him, who, who is this American actor that does such a great London accent? And Neil explained to me that Idris was British, in fact. And uh, I was blown away by that. And I wanted very much to work with him from that moment on. And I wanted to give the leader of this movie, I didn't want it to be a waspish military guy. I wanted a guy that felt so human, so burdened by responsibility and so forth, but that really, really was able to say, we are canceling the apocalypse and you would believe him. And there are maybe four actors in the world that can pull off that line, and Idris is one of them, and is the one that could do it. The entire cast, Bernd Gorman, uh, an amazing actor I, I've been admiring since his BBC uh, days, Charlie Day, who gives Newt the spark, the, the juice, the, the joy that he brings to everything he does. He is not only a great comedian, he's a great actor, as, as he will prove in a few minutes in a scene where he needs to deliver huge information, but with drama. And here we see what he sees. We see the world of the kaiju being put together, being breeded like an army. And uh, he gets all these hints. I cannot put text in this, so I have to just show you quick cuts of these images and then allow him to explain it like a guy that just came back from a traumatic experience. And Charlie does an amazing job. When we did that scene that is coming up, uh, 
We'll talk a little more about it. Charlie did over 20 takes, and he literally was in tears and shaking at the end of all those because I kept demanding more and more emotion from him. And this is what I wanted on Pacific Rim is, I think that you, when you're dealing with types, you may not have a character construction that is uh, psychologically complex and so forth, but you can bring great emotion. I wanted the movie to have a very human heart and emotion, and this is the heart of the movie. This little red shoe is the very, very heart of the movie, and we will get to it in a few minutes. Just as the kaiju genre was generated by the Castle Bravo fallout in the Bikini Atoll, you know, the birth of the mecha genre is very important. When I was a kid in the 60s, 1963, I remember the birth of the robot, giant robot genre with uh, Tatsujin 28 Go. You know, this is a character created by Mitsuteru Yokoyama, who created this giant robot that was basically sort of controlled by, by a kid. But the difference between the robot and the mecha is the robot has some autonomy. He has autonomy of decision, he has a personality of its own, and the mecha depends on the pilot. The pilot the controlling the mecha basically is putting on a gigantic suit of armor. And it was very important for the mecha genre to get uh, birthed by Gona guy when he was, legend has it, in a traffic jam in his car. He dreamt, what if I was inside a giant robot and I could stride over the traffic and get home? And he dreamt of uh, Mazinger Z, Mazinger Z, um, uh, one of the greatest mecha of all times, vital for my generation and younger generations. And the birth of Mazinger is important because now we are dealing with the characters inside the robot, inside the mecha. The pilots are as important as the suit itself. But Japanese culture loves the monsters, but it also loves uh, technology. And this is a very important point with the, the creation of the mecha genre. They don't have the ambivalence that we have in the West where technology is bad, is or Frankenstein is going to turn against us and is going to destroy us. The Japanese have an unabashed love of technology, and it allows them to then dream about it in mythical terms. In the same way that they integrate monsters in their daily life through an animistic uh, belief that everything has a spirit, and the yokai, the demons and ghosts of the everyday lore in Japan, are integrated in their costumes and their daily life, Kaiju have come to be integrated in and have come to symbolize Japan. And Godzilla became, and the Kaiju genre became, a way to deal with spiritual issues and a way to heal from the wounds of World War II and so forth. Well, the mecha genre allows the Japanese to dream of technology in a guilt-free way and think about this uh, mecha, these suits, these robots, these giant creations uh, as mythical heroes. They can think about them in mythical terms. They can imagine these gigantic warriors and they imbue them with personality and dignity and honor and code. Even Mazinger Z, the, the word itself is a fusion that brings a spiritual component to it, a sort of gigantic, demonic, heroic quality to it. 
And uh, the mecha in Pacific Rim are meant to be like that, like knights in shining armor, in a way, the most gigantic one. And this is the scene where Charlie delivers that beautiful, super complicated monologue. And we did over 20 takes, and uh, I uh, made him cry and cry and cry and really, really be on the edge and play him against a very, very stern, silent uh, Pentecost. Newton, I need you to do it again. And again, in these movies, you have to deal with character by opposition, by contrast, or by harmony. And I wanted Pentecost to be a huge contrast with Newt in the same way that in a few minutes, Newt is going to come in contact with Hannibal Chow, Ron Perlman's character, and they're going to become the most outlandish thing in the film. And it allows me to do a tonal change. We will talk about it in a few minutes. But uh, Hannibal Chow and the comedy that comes from Newt meeting him was necessary for me to go into a crazier, uh, formal, visual realm, to bring more saturated colors, to go a little crazier in the Hong Kong fight, what I call the Battle of Hong Kong, which is a gigantic action set piece that lasts over 20 uh, minutes and is, in technical terms, the scene that I'm the proudest of. And uh, without Hannibal Chow and Newt, that would totally be impossible to get to. It would be too heightened. If you remember, the last guy you seen we saw was sort of realistic, quote-unquote, with no music, with uh, repeated cuts, with uh, very strict lighting codes and so forth. And here we go into what is my favorite scene in the film. It was very important for me that the mistake came from Raleigh. Raleigh is the one that has the first mistake and that triggers Mako because then after this scene they well, they will need to reveal each other's heart and trust each other and it can only happen if Raleigh made a mistake and then she makes a mistake and everything goes wrong and this transition is theatrical it's not digital, it's not huge effects I wanted to go to simplicity and it's a theatrical simplicity she starts walking and live on camera we fade out the lights we bring in the snow and she's in the past it's a very simple theatrical trick but I didn't want everything in the movie to be super complicated digital effects I wanted to bring some expressive artistic effects and here we are, she's holding the shoe she's holding her past and this is a scene that is color-coded with splashes of red, and the rest is mostly blue. So it's a blue scene with splashes of red. And this blue will stay in Mako and stain her heart and her hair. And this is basically the way I can reconnect people with the fear of giant monsters a little bit. It's very hard for an adult, a sophisticated audience, to connect with that. But they can do it through the eyes of a child. This is the only time I can actually bring... Not, the rest of the movie is fun, is, is really fun, and is wild, and is exuberant, and is full of very simple pleasures, and terse heroism, effortless heroism in a way, and so forth. But this scene, again, a transition that is very theatrical. Originally, we, we were talking about making Raleigh translucent and she goes through him and he's sort of liquid and we were going to spend huge amounts of money into achieving these effects and this and that. And I said, no, let's just have him standing there. He's already there. This giant set that you're seeing is rigged. You look at the puddles. The whole set is rigged. 
The whole street is rigged. The cars, the walls, the puddles, the pavement, the street with hydraulic jumpers. So every step the kaiju took, the entire set shook. And that helped the actress, the little girl, to feel that fear of something gigantic really coming and coming close, closer and closer to her. But this is the root. This is a key moment. We're coming to literally the heart of the film in which we show them, and again, following the sports analogy, this is the big game. This is the first game for the rookies. They come in and they have to have to lose the game. Why? Because by losing the game, everything will be against them. And following the sports analogy, that's when they finally score their first home run, slam dunk, whatever you want to call it. And this is again about proportion and the only way we can evoke the fear of a kaiju is through the eyes of Mako. And I wanted to code this scene different than the rest of the scene in the movie. We follow one point of view. We are seeing everything from her point of view. We don't see the fight. We only see it happen in the background. And again, these are audiovisual uh, decisions that are where form is content. I'm not showing you the spectacle of the robot fighting the kaiju. You know, you know we can do it. You know we have done it. You know we're gonna do it again. But here we constrain the point of view only to her side of the story. Why was it important? It's important in the storytelling because we need to feel what she feels. It needs to be almost like a fairy tale moment. I wanted this to have magic, the memory of her as a child, to be terrible, but also to be moving and to see this little girl like a princess that has been saved from a dragon by a knight in shining armor. And we'll get to that when we complete that memory. And now we start bringing literally bringing the crazy colors into the film. I wanted to color code this movie and bring it as close as possible to a living anime or a living incarnation of a magazine that was very important for me growing up, which is heavy metal, with Angus McKay, Richard Corbin, Chris Foss, all these guys that were working with super primary colors, and I wanted to bring that saturation of colors to this, and for that I needed Hannibal Chow, to meet Newt in Hong Kong. And again, these are gigantic sets. This is not CG sets. We built entire two-story high blocks of Hong Kong, Hong Kong in the future, to create a real sense of place. And then we demolished those sets. And this, these old sets are, are all gigantic. Uh, this is a, a movie that had over a hundred sets and we spilled, we entirely took over Pinewood Studios in Toronto and spilled over a couple more studios. And just, for example, the size of the Hannibal Child set that we are revealing here is gigantic and a very, very complex set. But this allows me to start bringing crazy colors into the movie. This allows me to go more outlandish and Ron Perlman becomes instantly the strangest creature on the screen. <laughs> You know, this is what is going to allow me to go into a crazy territory with the battle for Hong Kong with the with the kaiju. I love Ron. I love every actor in this film. And uh, I wanted to introduce you know, Santiago Segura, my friend. But Ron Perlman, to introduce him through the most outlandish detail of him, which are the shoes. And to bring him, he's sort of a mixture of a pimp, a teddy boy. 
And, you know, in designing his wardrobe, Kate and I spoke about his colors, his textures. She chose very carefully what we did with him. We talked about his shoes and we spent months into designing and fabricating those shoes, especially for him. But he instantly is a character that is a self-made man of the strangest nature. You know, I talked to him about his character. Each of these actors got a little biography of their characters. And uh, with Ron, I said, Hannibal Chow is a guy that is a swindler, a black marketeer, but a guy that is necessary also to save the world. Even the dishonesty and the sort of uh, shamelessness of uh, Hannibal Chow is necessary to save the world. Every, every color of humanity is necessary for us to stand together. You two are a goddamn disgrace. You're gonna get us all killed, and here's the thing, Raleigh. And we're coming to the to the really heart of the conflict, pun sort of intended, in which we're gonna see all the characters distrust each other. You know, all the characters dislike each other, and all the characters put an end to their sort of covenant and their why they are together in here. Uh, everybody starts falling apart before coming together one last time. And in following the sports analogy, this could be, you may say, the locker room fight, you know, the locker room fight after the big game, you know. It was very important to show, however, that Raleigh is a very controlled fighter. You know, I wanted you to get a sense that Chuck is very instinctive, very angry, very wild, and Raleigh remains very, very cool and collected that he can be a great fighter, that he can be effortlessly a good fighter right before the fight in Hong Kong, and that if Mako and him trust each other, they may succeed. In this idea of the world saving the world, I mean, lately, after the movie was released, it started to gain support from the most unlikely quarters, you know, William Gibson, Kanye West, Howard Stern, uh, Katsushiro Otomo, Hideo Kojima, Takashi Miike, you know, everybody, Brett Estonellis, everybody reached out in one way or another and, and celebrated the movie, celebrated the great effort that Andrew Nescaromi, Carol Spear, Guillermo Navarro, my, my trusted friend and compadre and cinematographer, that all we put together into creating a film that was a movie that is at the same time very complex and very simple. And I was so happy to hear these people I admire enjoy the movie. But I think no one put it better than William Gibson, who said, you know, to love the movie, you have to love it in its own terms. This is not a science fiction film that is there to create a dystopian, sort of existential, cynical view of the world. It's a movie that is very, very much a poem. A love poem to monsters and Mecca. A movie that wants to be in awe of the world it's portraying. And it is perfectly itself. He said very beautifully, anybody that doesn't like it, doesn't like it for not being what they want it to be. And they need to love it for what it is. And, and I really feel so blessed by this description that Gibson did not only because I admire him, but, but because he, he said it exactly the way I would say it. And there is a 
very delicate. I mean, the movie has so much craft from every quarter. You know, Guillermo Navarro doing some of his best lighting, Carol and Andrew designing beautifully, Callum Green and Mary Parent uh, joining me in producing the film, Ramin Jawadi, you know, doing beautiful musical score that, again, evokes heroism and evokes, at the same time, sort of a rock and roll spirit and, and the grandiose feel of an adventure movie and so forth. Travis Beecham and myself co-writing the screenplay, and this all leads to moments like this one, which I adore. A moment in which you discover a fairy tale princess seeing the knight in shining armor at the end of the street, backlit by the sun. Again, she discovers these warm colors. In this blue uh, flashback, she discovers the warmth, this crepuscular, beautiful sunset, warm colors. And a knight comes out of this Jaeger. And I wanted you to feel what she felt for Pentecost. I wanted you to realize why Mako is loyal to Pentecost. To me, she's a very strong character. And a strong character that doesn't need to fall in love with Raleigh and have a great kiss at the end and be romantically joined to Raleigh. I, I wanted her to be a pilot, to stand on her own and to, to be a very strong feminine character, but to do it again with the tracery of her story joined to Pentecost and Raleigh. It is a mistake to try to evaluate these characters by themselves. You can only evaluate them in the choral way that we are writing them. We are not writing them as separate characters. We're writing them as a single character, as humanity. And these three form one character. And the more you see through the movie and the more we talk about it, you will see how those three destinies become woven one to the other. And how Pentecost wants not to be close to Raleigh. He wants Mako to be away from danger. And how these three characters will come in harmony to accept the possibility of death, the possibility of failure. And that's when they will succeed. You know, I really think that's the only way you can read the character construction in this film. And as such, I really think uh, Mako is a very strong character for me, at least. Uh, built, built from a point of view of quiet strength and determination. And in this, Rinko was fundamental. Rinko is an actress that understands, like uh, Charlie understands, that quiet power is still power, you know? Uh, and they have this moment right now coming up in which not subtly, but certainly symbolically, you know, they will realize what went wrong and they will realize that they have to trust each other, that they are linked and the only way they're going to survive if they do trust each other. And in the background, Gypsy Danger, the giant robot, reveals uh, her heart to them. And it reveals the pulsing, uh, glowing heart of the robot. The shell is removed, and we can see the heart for the first time, you know? And that's why she says, her heart, how long has it been since you last saw it? And it's because they are both finally coming out of their shell. They are both finally 
revealing their heart to each other and allowing each other to be vulnerable. And this this idea uh, does, doesn't just exist in this movie singularly, but in all my movies. And again, here we go to the red, the red, which is life, coming in, and you will see it pay off all at the end with Magon Raleigh submerging the light of red in the final moments of the film but is always live coming back and the kaijus are now going to to engage in the biggest set piece of the film and we again have to go into sort of the visual of heroics and re-establish quickly the chinese team and the russian team and remind you that these guys are undefeated Again, following the sports analogy, the two best players the coach has are going to go into the field and are going to try to fight against the strongest team assembled. And these guys go out. It's a very triumphant launch. Everybody is ready. Everybody is not cocky, but sure of the battle. These are guys that have uh, gone undefeated defending the bay. The Russians, for example, the Russian Jaeger has no skate pods. You know, the Russians are so hardcore that they go down with their ship. They, they never abandon it. The Australians, you know, Striker Eureka is ready for the fight. Everything looks cool. I show you how cool they look. I show you how cool it is to launch them. I do another Thunderbirds sort of launching, giving you all the details of what it feels to be launched and dropped, the drop in the water and so forth. And we build it like this is the winning team. And... Very important in the, in the sports analogy, the two best players are going to be taken down and taken out of play real quick, brutally so. And now the score is against us, and of course the only one in the bench is the, the rookie, the rookie team, and we got to send it. Here we have a little detail. I, I always wanted to deal with what would happen with a kaiju if, if a kaiju fell. And even if you watch carefully in the storyboarding and in the so toxic, that all that real estate becomes super cheap. And then people can move in because that land is for free. And I think it's created called the bone slums, which is the slum where people build the buildings around the, the bones of the fallen kaiju. And... Uh, it's all the sort of illegal type of businesses and markets that flourish in the bone slums. They are sort of the outlaw area of the adventure movie, you know, the outskirts of the town, you know. And uh, there's also a section of people that would worship the kaiju. That would, you know, you see them burning an effigy in the beginning, but now we see that there is, they carve a temple out of the skull of the kaiju, and there are some people there praying to the kaiju to be delivered from evil, you know, because they think the kaiju have been sent from heaven. Now, in the Battle of Hong Kong, it was extremely important. Now, I wanted the first fight to be original and completely something you haven't seen in a kaiju movie in a way, uh, or a mecha movie. And the flashback of Mako is very much one point of view. Hong Kong, the battle for Hong Kong is my chance to do sort of key kaiju moments, you know, classical kaiju moments. And I wanted to show, again, the fight and the, and the thunder and the rain, but really show you great little battle moments to show you what each of the Jaegers can do 
why they were undefeated, and to go into little quotes. And I want to talk about a little bit about the two different schools of kaiju design. You have the Akira Watanabe sort of school, the, the more hardcore kaiju that are based on real species, you know, the reptilian kaiju, the insectoid kaiju, the crustacean kaiju. And this is the school that we started circling on the beginning with the Nakajima factor, you know, with the man in a suit factor. But there's also a crazier school of the kaiju design that is the Toru Narita. Narita Toru was um, the main designer on the Tokusatsu series of uh, Eiji Tsuburaya. And Narita was a lot more outlandish. He ended up bringing kaijus that were so funny, so vulnerable, so great in, in all the Ultra series for uh, Tsuburaya that you actually found sympathy and love. Like my favorite kaiju... One of my favorites is obviously called Pigman. And it's a little kaiju that is adorable. And then another one is Baltan Seijin, which is sort of a locust-like kaiju. But from Narita, we take these little outlandish things. You know, the, the spewing of acid, the idea that uh, kaijus can have very colorful uh, components. I brought in the idea of the... Um, bioluminescent markings because these kaiju are fabricated by a race and that race needs to have the markings look at this my favorite shot in the film probably and one with great use of water i'll talk about the helicopters in a minute but you'll have to rewind to this scene but as i was saying the markings indicate that the kaiju are artificial they are being built like machines in this scene, we're going to see kaijus do things for the first time. Use an EMP pulse and a little later fly. And we'll talk about it in a second. But here comes a really key moment. I wanted to show the vanquishing of the Russian team in a very dramatic way. To show the power, the sheer power of the leatherback submitting the Russian Jaeger and destroying it really quick and brutally so. Very painfully so. And we go here with Striker Eureka, we go to a classic, classic kaiju moment, which is the kaiju over the head, what I call kaiju over the head lift. It's an almost like a wrestling move that is very, very common in kaiju movies and is lifting the kaiju above, particularly Tsuburaya-esque moment. And again, we break the waterline, obscure the image and so forth, but it's definitely a, a hero moment. Same with this rocket launcher, classical mecha moment, you know, and in a way I wanted to evoke the toy on the beginning in the beach, you know, those toys that I had as a kid that where the robot chest opened and something was there, you know, it was so beautiful, so simple and so childlike and I wanted to evoke it here. And now, when we, when we start designing this, this battle, we then start designing it again to try to convey what the heroism of the movie is, and that is to be unafraid in a very basic way, to, to have the fear and conquer it, and Raleigh and Mako, who have just failed, to come in and say, we can do it, to go for real. We don't know if it's going to succeed or not. 
and here we do what I used to call the Nautilus shot, you know, evoking the Jules Verne Nautilus lights under the water moment with Otachi. And Otachi, this monster, was designed to be, because he was the one that was going to be on the screen the longest. I needed to fold into him, into it, well, her. We're going to find out it's a her. Into her, I needed to fold sort of three or four kaijus in one. What do I mean by this? What I mean by this is one key rule in monster design is you need to be able to have the monster change. If it's going to be on the screen many, many times, you need to add little details every time it's on screen. And when I was a kid watching the Gilman on Creature from the Black Lagoon, you have the suit, you have it underwater, that's great, but there's a moment when it's above water and you see it breathing and the gills are moving on the sides of the mask. And that's great because it's real. And you go, wow. With Otachi, you see it, you see it underwater, and now you see it in land and it moves very differently. It becomes almost a different monster. And its face... Oh, again, another key kaiju moment. People running down the street, uh, kaiju at the end of the street destroying the buildings. And an ironic moment, too, not only a key kaiju moment, a classical kaiju moment, but a moment where Newt, who said, don't call me a doctor and I want to see a kaiju up close, he contradicts himself right here saying, I'm a doctor, I'm a doctor. And at the same time, uh, at the end of this scene, and the next one with the baby, he will not want to be close to a kaiju again. But as, as I was saying, it's important for the kaiju to keep changing. So Otachi then has the face, which splits open. That's another change. It engorges with the acid sac on the neck and spews acid. That's a separate, almost a separate monster again in itself. And so on and so forth. Now, look, I love this moment with the kaiju because Hal animated a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful character moment. Hal Hickle and John Knoll, they became real partners. And look at this. The kaiju is curious, you know? And this is pure pantomime. This is directing an actor. To be able to collaborate with Hal and the animators, people have this horrible misnomer, computer animation. Nothing is done by the computers. Computers process data. That's all they do. This is animation made by animators, by humans. And this little detail coming up, look at the skin on the kaiju and look at the skin parasites in the kaiju, which later will come into play. But we, in some shots in the movie, we wanted to put the skin parasites crawling in the kaiju. How really does a great job at, at bringing character. We would talk, uh, we would direct the pantomime together, and his team delivers some of the most beautiful character animation in the last 10 years for me. And uh, this is also a good moment to see the kaiju, the way we texture the kaiju. We talked about the uh, mecha and how we do little details. If you rewind the scene and look at the close-ups of Leatherback, you realize that when we go close, you go from the textures and the big silhouette to a lot of little details that give it scale and volume, you know? This scene, this fight right here, is lit from a, a helicopter. The helicopters became very important in shooting this movie. I'm lighting it like a boxing match with the light coming from above. You know, almost evoking a boxing fight from an American realism painting. 
you know? And in the digital moments of animation, you know, John Null becomes our cinematographer. Then we start coding. Again, form is content. How do we give you scale? Look at the way we layer the light on this fight scene. There are two levels of light. One is the above light, which is cool. And the bottom the light, the tungsten light, which is warm, like the sort of acid yellow light. And that gives you scale. You have the greens with the fluorescence or the cool lights. And that allows you to see that these kaijus exist at different heights that are story heights. Look, the bottom is going to be warm and the top is going to be cool or in the greens. And then we use the helicopters. We use the helicopters constantly to light them, you know, like they become our little gaffers. And if you see, if you rewind to the fight with the Russians, you see how beautifully the helicopter illuminates like a cocoon of light around the creatures. It hits the water and it illuminates the water, which is obscuring the figures and almost creates like a cocoon of light to illuminate them, you know? That's beautiful. And then we do that with uh, smoke a little later. And now look, watch carefully what comes out of the containers. We're constantly, when we hit with the containers, there are little motorcycles, mopeds, furniture coming out, you know, to give scale. Again, I want you to know that that container has a refrigerator, a TV, a sofa, a moped, you know, whatever it comes out of the containers. Like a few seconds ago, we saw a container full of uh, Vespas or mopeds coming out, spilling out, you know. And that keeps telling you the scale of the film. But again, in Hong Kong, I wanted it to feel different than any other fight. So we are keeping everything about scale. We're going to hit a very important scale moment now. When they go through the bridge, there's lodging all the little cars right here. But I want to use humor in this fight. So this is a very grisly moment of humor when the when the arm gets dislodged. But then this moment where they come to a stop very, very much and we go to a very small detail with the little seagull. Pop, they hit it and the seagull flies away. That way I'm, I'm not only reminding you of scale, but I'm also bringing tonally now humor. Now remember, the first two fights have anything but humor. We are trying to separate each of the fights in its own emotional, but in its own also visual coding. Now we are full on colors. Very different. If you could go back from this fight to the fight on the beginning, my God, now we are in a saturated color land. We are making jokes. This all it's, we're making not only jokes in the screenplay, we're making visual puns. This is very important. The humor is not only in the script, it's not only scripted lines and character, but you're also bringing humor now in the, in the visual, in the visual humor of the film. And this is only possible because now Newt and, uh, and Hannibal Chow exist in the movie. That's the point of inflection that allows us to go into this crazier place. And in a few seconds, we have a lot of fun, again, Otachi revealing its tongue. And again, that's a different side of the monster. And also, I tried to do a visual pun, if you watch it carefully, when the collapsed uh, roof and the street comes in into the place here. 
I tried to create sort of a face, a kaiju face with two lights and an open mouth with the with the ramp. And and it's all about scale. It's I construct this moment to go big boom and then silence and just a little squeak of the lights and a little cracking and it's sort of a quiet moment before a huge shock. And all this is orchestrated audiovisually to contrast quiet with big, giant with small, you know, and you're constantly trying to keep this evolving and the way I, here's the mouth and the two eyes uh, that I was talking about. And uh, we are now bringing humor into the fights. And we are about to hit one of my favorite humor notes that came from the scouting in Hong Kong, which is we scouted Hong Kong for about eight days or so. We scouted by air, we scouted by land, and we scouted by sea. And I laid out the map, and we'll talk about it in a few seconds, but I was going through the bay and I saw this giant old tanker. And I said, wouldn't it be funny if Gypsy carried that tanker like a baseball bat into a fight, really like thuggish, but with the walk of a gunslinger. You know, is the walk of a gunslinger at the end of the street coming into the fight with the bad guy, you know? And now we are fully in crazy territory, you know, and fully in humor territory. This is very important to notice because this is where I say the audiovisual language is content. It is bringing now visual, audiovisual humor into the film. Now, the, we are playing with the alarms in the cars. We are tossing cars like pebbles in the street. And we start gaining the proportion of going into almost model territory. This is where we want to juxtapose very real shots, like the one coming up, that gives you a real sense of scale, this one. And juxtaposing them with moments that are miniature moments that evoke the best of a great kaiju movie, you know? Moments in which you almost feel this is a very real moment, but full of saturated colors. But then a few seconds later, we're going to a miniature moment, which gives you the sense that you're watching a classical uh, miniature film moment. Look at the shaking of the glass, you know? None of this happens by accident. Every little particle flying here, every little gesture, the shaking of the glass, the shaking of the camera, all is done, directed, and put there for a reason. And here comes a visual pun. And this is a model, you know? Uh, we utilize real maquettes in the film. We are not only using cutting-edge digital, everybody thinks, oh, okay, everything's digital. No, we, we actually constructed miniature models in order to bring some of the sort of old-fashioned uh, feel to the film and this was extremely important for uh, John Nolan myself John is a guy that you can see come alive around a miniature and I myself feel that way and I think you need to to combine all techniques I think that if people use digital effects in a lazy way then the movie shows you that everything's digital but if you keep combining seamlessly a real set a real miniature with digital effects and they all have the same color language it all comes together now it's very important that you calibrate the color language and the visuals for these things to cut between each other and be in the same sort of color spectrum and in the same arena you cannot have one visual philosophy inside the cockpit and one outside 
Here comes, we have two great moments, two wow moments. This one coming and the one coming up. And again, directing the swirls of smoke and dust under the wings. I wanted to evoke one of the best moments in animation, the unfolding of the wings of Chernobog, you know, in Fantasia. But we wanted to create the majesty, the spectacle of the final reveal of Otachi. We were talking about Otachi being several monsters in one. Well, this is the final Otachi monster, where you go, oh my God, this thing flies. And so far, we have never seen a kaiju fly. That's why Jaegers are not equipped to fly. And now we come to my favorite wow moment in the movie that is given to Mako, the deploying of the sword. And it's so good for her. Normally, you would give this character to the male character, to the boy, the hero of the film, and this and that. And it was so important. And Thomas Toll kept insisting, and, you know, no matter how the screenplay failed, Thomas was saying, it's very important we give this to Mako. It's very important that we give. And it's so beautiful to be talking to the head of a studio that is supporting the female character that we were all in the same page that we needed to go and give this to Manco to get, to have her say for my family, but it's not only the family that she lost in that memory. I made the conscious decision not to show the family uh, destroyed in the memory because it's all the family that she is formed now. Is, is, the, is the Russians that die, the Chinese that die, is the family, the human family that we've seen slaughtered so far in the movie, every single time a kaiju appears, was a losing moment. And this is a huge victory. Now this is a beautiful moment with the helicopter look. The way we design with this cause, let's light the, the dust and the smoke and create a cocoon of light with this beautiful purplish light around Gypsy. And uh, these are moments of, of great beauty for me. These are moments in which this movie comes as close as it has ever come for me to painting with film. This film is the most controlled, joyful exercise in image creation I've ever had in my life. And I can create hero moments like this with an amazing team. Guillermo Navarro and his team of grips and gaffers, you know, particularly David Lee and Rick Strabling, you know, they, they came in and, and what we did in, in lighting the sets was to create a big console situation where we had the cabin, the control room for the pilots. We created a situation where we could control every nuance of the color on a big board. And that's what allows me full control of the colors, almost like a painterly way. This is a great moment for Newt. Newt is going to get a couple more moments, hero moments again. But you, you can start seeing the balance shift. Now the characters, all the characters are going to start getting their moment, quote-unquote. Newt starts getting his moment. This is a moment where the guys that were against him acquiesce and say, look, my son will never admit it, but he's grateful. You know, and this is the reverse moment. Everybody starts to come together and everybody's going to get their moment. Mako just had the sword moment. Pentecost is about to have a beautiful speech in which he cancels the apocalypse a few minutes from now. And uh, we're starting the reversal movement in the film. They are now going to come together and face the biggest odds in the film. 
Now, I talk about it, and I talk about it with great pride because when you're scripting a genre movie, the rules are somewhat different. You are delivering a summer entertainment, and you are making dessert. You're not making a vichyssoise. You're not making soup. You're not making a main course. You're making a, a beautiful dessert. You're making a confection. And you don't bring the same rules. If film is a banquet, the rules as a filmmaker that you apply to a movie like this are different rules than what you apply to confection that is of a different flavor. And in making a screenplay like this, you are working with three or four layers. One of which is huge is information. You know, you have to know, people need to know the science the reasons, you know, why Why is this happening? The parasites, we established, we established that they're harvesting, we're establishing that they have to pump oxygen into the kaiju belly, like a laparoscopic surgery, blah, blah, blah. You're dispensing science and you're dispensing information, hopefully effortlessly. Second layer is plotting, you know, and then you're dealing with character and you're dealing with character in a very efficient way. And those rules you have to apply generically. You cannot, if you don't do it carefully, the, the tone of the movie uh, becomes out of control. You know, if we are too serious or too funny, either way, you're losing a little bit of control. But if you have Hannibal and Nude, you can then do these crazy moments like this. You can go inside the belly of a kaiju with the suits. And visually, those suits are very outlandish. They are self-illuminating. They have markings on them. They are made of latex, dental dam. But now we are in full sort of surreal territory. And it's very important to do so. Why? Because we are about to have one of the most outlandish moments in the film. And one of the first things I pitched when I met with Travis and Legendary at the beginning of the process, we had only a few pages of the pitch Travis had. And... I immediately pitched the idea of the neural bridge between pilots. And the second thing I pitched is this moment, where like in a Mexican telenovela, the camera pushes into Newt and music crescendos, and he says, it's pregnant, you know? And it's very much like a Mexican melodrama. And then we give birth to a baby kaiju. And this is, yes, again, when we're talking about the layers, plot, it gives Newt its brain, the brain that he needs. Now he can drift with a, a kaiju. But secondarily, it's a huge moment of crazy humor. Now look at the rigging. We rigged the street and the cars and everything to shake and we actually overturned the cars, overturned the debris. We actually are creating explosions around Newt. All this is done in a real street with real physical elements to land the kaiju on the frame. All of this is real. We built all this set. We built blocks and blocks of destroyed Hong Kong. These are not just digital extensions. It's a combination of digital extensions and a massive, massive set that took an entire stage. But it's very important here to notice one of the things I do with animation. Obviously, animation, when it's really, really bad, things feel like they don't have a weight. Hal Hickel and his team and John Knoll, we always were discussing giving weight to these things. But then it's also important to give you physical things that can anchor 
the monster in the plate, that there really is a car being overturned, that there is real debris flying around, that the creature is not just digitally rendered, but there are real elements uh, that allow it to exist. And then you will notice something I do with effects, which is I root them in an atmospheric element. I can put a Jaeger with snow drifting around it, and the snow, the way the Jaeger disturbs the snow, shows that the Jaeger is moving through the air, through space. I can do it with ashes in the flashback of Mako, those little floating particles. It disturbing that also shows you that it's physically there. Or I can do it with embers in here. But it's very important for me to have, or we can do it with condensation in the air. But it's extremely important that the digital model is anchored in the plate with obviously a very careful shadow pass, with gravity, with this and that, but also with elements that are floating around, that the digital model this moves and moves through so that it feels integrated into the plate. This is sort of invisible coding, audiovisual coding, but it gives the audience a sense of reality. In the same way that we talked about giving a sense of world construction by details, these are details that make the model seem like a real thing moving on a real space. Why? Because anytime you do an effect, you're basically lying. You're lying audiovisually. And lies are more believable the more you fill them with little strange real details. When you say, I'm late because I couldn't find a parking space, that's a lie. But when you say, I took so-and-so street, I was about to find a parking space, and this beetle, this this car, pulled and took my space, and I argued with the, the, the guy driving the car, and I couldn't find any change. And you embellish the lie with all these little textural details that give the sense of reality. Then that audiovisual lie succeeds. When you feel those little details on the plate or on the design or on the color coding, it allows the audience to relax and say, I suppose this is real. And now we come to the moment, again, in which the two scientists have a bonding and these guys have disliked each other. And I frankly, honestly, I'm very moved by this moment. It's one of my favorite moments in the film and directing the actors here was a pleasure, you know? For them to be arguing, 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 and then Godlieb says, we're going to do this together, you know? And there's a very awkward, very touching moment in which Newt says, you would do this for me, with me? I remember directing this moment and asking them to be awkward about it, you know? To have a burn do the by Jove, we're going to own this thing for sure, this little awkward gesture. And we were all laughing on the set, but, but it was honestly a very touching moment for me. A very human moment for me. Do I really have a choice? But say it with me, my man. We're going to own this bad boy. All right, Joe, we are going to own this thing for sure. <laughs> I think it's important to deliver summer entertainment to kids because me at age 11, me at age 12 watching this movie, it's not only great to have great monsters and great mecca, but to actually have humanity and the values of humanity tossed into the mix. And not just be cool and be cold and be sort of hip and be sort of distant, but bring unironic heroism. 
this is such a moment. You know, I think that first of all, no one carries that suit like Idris Elba. But we, we make a completely earnest moment of heroism. And then I diffuse it with the joke, which is a fat man's joke. You know, I didn't remember it being so tight and so forth. But this is, this is something I've done with my entire life, with my entire career, all my movies. I have always taken the most outlandish premises. Think about it for a second. Demon child brought by a Nazi ritual in World War II that becomes a paranormal detective for the government. Not an easy premise, I can assure you. Uh, anti-fascist fairy tale in which the fairy tale imagery is as scary and as uncomfortable as the fascism surrounding it in a Spanish civil war. Not an easy premise, I assure you, and so forth. And same with this one. But I believe in the things I'm telling, and faith is such an important moment. Delivering this speech, Idris was uncomfortable until I instructed him here not to turn. I told Idris, try it again. I will not print until the crew claps, until the crew applauds your speech. But try to not turn on the beginning. Try to give your back to the camera. It's a very powerful gesture. And then slowly get into the speech. And this is the take where the crew applauded. And I wanted him to believe in it. Ishiro Honda, when he started Gojira, he said to his crew, he gathered everybody in the kitchen of his home, and he said, listen guys, if anyone here doesn't believe we're doing a great movie, that we're making a great movie with a giant monster, please leave. And I, I demand of myself and my crew and my cast the same thing. We have to be unironic. We have to never be postmodern about these things we do. What you see is an exercise in faith and an exercise in love. And I deliver myself completely to every movie I do without a single shred of irony. And I wanted my cast to feel that way. Because you can feel when, when people don't believe what they're doing. You can sense when people don't believe in that. And I, and I think you can make a great, great movie out of a movie with giant monsters and giant robots. I do believe it. I believe that you can make a movie where kids watching it today are going to talk about it 10 years from now and say, I love the moment I saw this movie. You don't think about it as a business. You don't think about it from a careerist point of view. You don't think about any of that. You think about these goodbyes, these moments, you know, the moment where the son says goodbye to the father, but everybody, by cutting to Mako, by cutting to Pentecost in a few seconds, everybody's saying goodbye to everybody. And you realize that, that no matter how many times you drift with someone, you still have to say, I love you at the right moment, you know. And this is the scene where everybody is saying goodbye to everyone by the montage, by the assembly, by the editing. And it's, it's a moment that was important for me because family, the notion of family is important in all my films. I'm sort of obsessed with that. Family being the root of all joy and all horror in our lives. You know, you can see all the movies. And this moment, which we improvised on the set, I said to Max, say, that's my son you got there. Because it's so important to remember that whoever dies or lives in this film is somebody else, somebody else's brother, sister, son, father, you know? And 
this is the moment where they all find life. And this is where Raleigh says, look, regretfully, I never thought about a future until now. And now we may die. I never did have very good timing. And then they fall. Bam. They have falls. You know? And um, to me, this sort of almost throwback classic moments of heroism are important in a film that can have a huge, very complex technical wrapping. We are doing cutting-edge technology. We're using state-of-art computers. We're using great animation, blah, blah, blah. But, but at the end of it, at the heart of it, there is this great, beautiful human emotion. And here we show, you know, the infancy of Newt and the infancy of Gottlieb and, you know, this and that. And then we go into more information. The code is being written into the DNA of the kaiju. And you see this sort of typing machine fingers. And you see the portal opening, blah, blah, blah. And then the scientists will have to explain emotionally what they understood from that drift. You know, the drifts were very important, but they were designed to be black and white sort of and in a cyan light if you see on the dvd or in the blu-ray in one of the supplements we show you how we shot him we shot them and we went through great pains to actually shoot the drift in black and white people were dressed in black and white made up in black and white and so forth and we come to the final fight and again water is part of the language of the film the water gives it majesty, the water gives it this, and, and, but we're doing now daylight. And daylight, and now we're going to go to a place where no kaiju and no mecha movie had gone before, which is the bottom of the ocean. The process of 3D in this movie was very, very long and convoluted, but one that brought me great joy, because I do think we made one of the best 3D conversion movies ever, you know? Originally, we were going to shoot the movie in 3D. That's why we adopted the, the cameras we adopted, the Epic Red. And then we realized that the schedule wouldn't allow us to shoot in native 3D. And we abandoned that. But I still shoot very much in a 3D-friendly way. You can watch all my movies. I always have foreground elements. I always use wide lenses and this and that. We had made the decision to shoot this movie with very wide lenses. Uh, why? Because we needed to encompass huge things, these Jaegers and these Kaijus. And you cannot have one level of language in telling the story of these giant things and another level of language, audiovisually, when telling the human story. So if you watch carefully the film, there are very few close-ups. Very few close-ups. A two-shot is a close-up. A medium shot is a close-up. Rarely, I do go into close-ups here and there, but I'm keeping the language consistent because you cannot have one language with the robots and the monsters and another language audiovisually with the human characters. So we keep the lenses sort of wide. And uh, shooting with wide lenses makes it very friendly for the foreground to exist in a 3D movie. And I'm constantly putting objects in the foreground moving on, around. But the key with 3D is not to throw things at you like a lot of people do. It's actually to just give you a sense of depth. The best way of giving you a sense of depth is having things in the background or in the foreground move along the depth of the frame. And that's perfect for underwater. Again, following the philosophy that you need to anchor the kaiju or the mecha in the plate, what do we do at the bottom of the ocean? We have particles of silt. 
floating around in the water. And when you see this film in 3D, if you saw this film in 3D, you see these particles floating in the foreground, in the water. And that gives it a lot of depth, you know? And then in the normal shooting, you saw, you know, two shots, wide shots. We rarely go to a close-up in the film. You keep it quite open, you know? And that's important. But look at the silt, the little silt, the little bubbles, these things that float in the foreground are giving you the depth. And finally, we came to the moment in which the studio said, would you consider converting this movie into 3D? Now, normally conversion comes with a stigma because one of the few movies to be converted to 3D brought a lot of uh, bad rep to conversion. But I wholeheartedly embraced the 3D conversion and I asked Warners and Legendary three conditions. One is that they gave us sufficient time to do the conversion. I asked for about three times the normal time, the amount of time that they give a movie to convert. I talked to Jim Cameron at Great Dev about how he converted Titanic. Uh, Jim is a good friend for the last 20 something years. We've been on each other's editing room every time. Uh, right before I went to shoot the reshoots of this film, he came, I showed him the movie. He gave me his comments. He was very nice in giving me time to give me his comments. And he was super nice to give me all his comments on 3D conversion before we shot this film. And then again, when we were preparing to convert, he said, you, you need at least 40-something weeks. Uh, you need to watch for this, this, and that. And I really felt comfortable after talking to him that I could convert it properly. Every single thing that was converted in this film was supervised by me. Again, normally, sometimes the conversion happens with the director being involved in two or three sessions total or seeing the results at the end, commenting one or two times, and that's it. We actually were meeting with the 3D conversion house on the beginning two, three times a week. And at the end of the process, we were meeting with them seven times a week, Monday to Monday. And every single piece of roto, every single piece of technical layering of the 3D shots was supervised and approved by me. I come from a special effects background, and I, using the language of composites, is extremely useful in talking to the 3D conversion house to keep all those elements together. And thanks to my chat with Jim and thanks to the preparation we had and the time we had, I was able to also ask for a third condition, which is the effects house needed to show me they could convert the hardest pieces of this film, which are these pieces here inside the cockpit where there is water, steam, foreground steam, sparks, all these things that are actively in the plate, baked in the 2D plate, and that they could convert them properly without them looking funky. And I think then we proceeded to torture the company Stereo D for, for months and months and months, about 40-something weeks, into doing this properly. But I'm, again, the proudest of this conversion. And if you saw it on a big screen in 3D, I do hope that you enjoyed it. And I tell you, it was blood, sweat, and tears. 
In shooting the film, we then came to this final moment, and again, these three characters, Marco, Rolly, and Pentecost, which have existed in a blue-amber world, start to come to a red space, you know? This is the first time we use this red space properly in this film. Other than the Chinese robot, we've been very careful with not coding anything in red, but now, at the end of the adventure, everybody's coming alive. And at the end of the life, at the end of their life, that is that uh, Michael Raleigh, everybody's going to find this life, this red. And now I can talk to you about the way I sort of organized the three fights for Raleigh. I wanted one fight with the kaiju to be the fight where he loses someone. He loses his brother in the beginning. That's where he bleeds red, you know? Then the second fight in Hong Kong is where he gains a partner. He loses a partner on the first fight, he gains a partner on the second fight. And in this final fight, he saves that partner. So it's a full circle. I show him in the construction area on the beginning, sitting in a sort of throne of concrete, if you remember when he meets Pentecost, with an incomplete circle. And here he completes that circle. This is a great moment because I've never seen an explosion, an atomic explosion underwater, and I wanted to create this vacuum of air. So now there's air in the middle of the ocean and fish are falling and flopping on the ground. And then that air starts to come back together and the bubble closes. And it was a very difficult moment of animation and a very difficult moment to transmit in the course of making it. I wanted very much that explosion to be unique. You've never seen this on screen before. And we storyboarded it, we did animatics, and you couldn't get it. We previewed this film in Burbank a couple of times, and the, it was like a rock concert. The audience loved it. This movie connects very strongly with an audience. We got great cinema score, great connection. It was a challenging movie to market in America, but those that saw it in the theater connected very strongly. And this was one satisfying moment. At the last time we previewed the movie, we previewed with the final, well, close to final effect of that explosion. And it was a, a big, great gasp in the audience. It was great to see it with an audience. And I'm very, very proud of that moment. And again, we're talking about this final battle for Raleigh. And this is the final battle where he decides, I'm going to save Mako, you know? I'm going to save Mako because it's not going to happen to me again. I'm not going to lose a partner again. And we are now fully immersed in this red with them, fully immersed in life at the end of the battle. And he saves her. And he says, Travis Beecham wrote these lines that I love which is all I need is fall. I can do this alone. Everyone can fall, you know? And I found it so beautiful and incredibly moving. And uh, that's one of my favorite moments. And now we go to the other world and we used electronic microscope photography to sort of illustrate the look of the throat, the communication between the two worlds. I wanted it to be very much like microphotography, electronic microphotography, almost like a glow world. And John Knoll came up with the idea of the distortions in the, in the lens. He tried it and he found one that he liked. 
And again, my partnership with ILM has been a revelation in my life. I, I've come to enjoy so much the collaboration that I, I think I'm spoiled for life because these are real creative partners, real great artists, great animators in, imprinting their personality into the animation. Not computers, people that bring their personality. And that's why we refuse to do motion capture in this film. I wanted frame animation because through frame animation, you bring personality to these characters. You bring the personality of the animator to the kaiju or the robot or the mecha. And if you do motion capture, you have the personality only of one actor. As great as the actor can be, it's very hard to transmit what it is to be 25 stories high. I think Andy Serkis does amazing in doing King Kong or Gollum and stuff like that. But these are not the size of a skyscraper. And I thought the animation really, really needed to transmit the weight and how the shock absorbers compact and this and that. And now we got to the other side. We got to the other side in which we see the consumers, the guys that consume worlds, these precursors, these colonists. And they are depleted. They have depleted this world. So I wanted a crepuscular, really dying world with dying light. And the way we are directed this is by creating a horizon where a sun looks like a, at the same time, a tunnel, an eclipse, and it's hollow, and it, it looks like a sunset, but it's like a dying light, the dying sunlight of this world. You, you get the sense that this world is about to die, that they need to go to a new world in order to survive. And this is a reversal of the moment. Now they know what it feels to have a giant thing come into your world and kick your butt. I wanted now the monsters, the precursors, to see the Jaeger come in and show them what it feels to have a giant monster intrude your daily life. And uh, we finally got to this sort of most symbolic religious moment where Gypsy becomes lax and raises its arm out of gravity, you know, and then comes this cleansing gigantic explosion. And it's a very different explosion than the one we saw before underwater. It's almost like a purging light. And we're coming to the closing of the film, and it was important for me to find a good moment of drama for Mac on Raleigh. And again, uh, you're going to see names of the people I thank, Jim for the 3D and a couple of ideas that he gave for me to do. I had three days of reshoots, which I directed in Toronto again. And before doing those three days of reshoots, I showed the film to a few friends, Ryan Johnson, Alfonso Cuaron, and Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu. Alejandro helped me by removing, helped me remove seven minutes of the film and a few ideas and this and that. But for this final moment, and Ryan Johnson gave me a couple of ideas for a scene or dialogue, and he was so helpful and so great, and I will thank him forever for that. And Alfonso came in and also he... He came up with a couple of ideas. He came up with the final phrase for Raleigh, which I shot in those three days of reshoots in Toronto, where he says, you're squeezing me too tight. It was such a great moment of release, of humor, to not make it ponderous and great, you know? After all this drama, we needed release, and Alfonso suggested that line, and it works beautifully. Alfonso and Alejandro and I have a very close friendship. I give ideas to them in their editing room. 
and Gravity or Birdman or, and they come to my editing rooms and suggest things. And, you know, this is the first time in my life where I had the luxury because I finished the movie way under budget that I was able to pay from that budget that was left for three days where I could fine-tune the characters or fine-tune the action. And I wanted to maximize those three days. And still, we finished the movie way under budget. Still, we gave change to the Warners and Legendary, but I've never had the luxury of being able to come in and shoot for a few days. And I think it's, it's fantastic and it's something that I could easily get used to, you know, and I enjoy. And this is the, the closing moments and I, I really shot several versions of this ending to graduate it and, and decided that we needed to see everybody coming together but everybody coming together as equals, you know, and to see Herc alone, uh, remembering his son, remembering that loss. But Mac and Raleigh basically finding each other, but not in a romantic just way, in a, in a way that is but almost like glad to be alive, like to embrace and, and have the simple joy of we made it, you know, and that's, that's basically what it takes for all, all people to come together. Uh, to make it and to finish with with this sweeping shot where we again look at the scale and realize that the smallest element in this film was the humans in scale but spiritually it was the most important element it was the humans that saved the day not the machines not the firepower not the ballistic power but humanity and it was extremely important to do that at the end you will see Two things after this, this beautiful sequence, uh, the credit sequence by Imaginary Forces, which is amazing, with the great score by Ramin Jawadi. Ramin has been a pleasure to work with, and every time I hear this theme, I can't help but shake my head and, and get into the rhythm. I love this theme. But after this, you'll come to a little moment of symmetry. I, I construct Devil's Backbone or um, Hellboy and this and that with through symmetry. And I wanted, I'm very fetishistic for some reason about shoes in my movies and and I wanted to close with Hannibal Chow coming out of inside the kaiju and saying, where is my goddamn shoe? I wanted Hannibal alive because we love him too much, you know. After we killed him, Thomas Tall and John Jashney and myself, we got together and said, well, we got to bring him back. And Mako gets basically her shoe story complete. And I wanted to have Hannibal come out and say, you know, where is mine? And uh, I also, in the thank you credits, you're going to see David Cronenberg's name. David is a friend for uh, many years and he helped me through how to crew the movie in Toronto, some of the idiosyncrasies. And I must say, the reason I'm doing two movies, maybe even three movies in Toronto next, is because I had the best time of my life. Not only is Toronto a great city to live in, with one of the greatest cinematics, a huge cultural life, amazing restaurant, great bookstores, but it's also a city with one of the best depths of crew and cast in the world and you can make any movie in here and enjoy it you know i am now prepping right now my next couple of films here in toronto and 
I love doing it here. I love living here and I love working here. And uh, I thank David for that. And finally, as we come to the closing credits, if you stay with us that long, you'll see that the movie is dedicated to the memory of Ray Harryhausen and Ishiro Honda. The masters of monsters. You cannot have two more worthy people to dedicate a movie about uh, giant creatures than them. You know, the animation of Harryhausen of Talos in Jason and the Argonauts is fundamental in animating any giant robot or any giant mecha. You know, it's fundamental. It's the first time when I was watching a movie as a kid where I got a shiver down my spine in seeing scale. So the movie is dedicated to them with great love and great respect. And uh, I leave you with this. This final song that you hear in the soundtrack is the song that uh, was composed by Ramin Reza and Blake Perlman, who is Ron Perlman's daughter. I met Blake when she was a small, small child, and she has blossomed into this great artist, great girl. And uh, the song that she composed and performed for the film, the final song, expresses very much what I feel about humanity and about the movie. And you can see here uh, my conceptual team, everybody, a master, Francisco Ruiz Velasco, Guy Davis, Oscar Giccioni, Raul, everybody in, the, in those credits, go back and look at them. We did this movie, we developed this movie with a very small team, a very small team of conceptual artists, and we developed it over the course of about a year with this group of artists. I, I don't like having a huge amount of artists for long periods of time, or I like having a very small family where we can get to know each other and we can design the film properly. I want to thank Chris Ramo, uh, my BFX uh, producer, and his team for a great experience. And making this film, honestly, has been the best experience I've ever had in making a movie, ever. I enjoyed every minute of it. At the end of the shoot, we were all separating People were crying. Nobody wanted to leave. We wanted to keep going. And I do hope, I do hope that the love with which this movie was done, the simplicity and purity of heart with which this movie was done, the joy that we had in making it, somewhat reached you. That somewhat, whatever age you are, you can believe in giant monsters and you can believe in giant mecha again. And for a moment become a child, an 11-year-old child like I became throughout the process of this film. I found myself smiling involuntarily many times a week, and I do thank you for watching this film with me today, listening to my ramblings, and spread the word, spread the love, and thank you. All we do in life, all I do in life, is for monsters. Let's keep them alive together.